Hi, and welcome to Blissful Spinster. This week's guest is editor Susan Littenberg. Susan lives in Los Angeles, and she's been an editor on over 15 feature films, including Charlotte's Web, Bride Wars, Easy A, and my favorite, 13 Going on 30. Susan was nominated for an Ace Award for Easy A, and she also edited the music doc, The Ballad of Rambling Jack, that won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance, among many other awards. Early in Susan's career, when she was still an assistant editor, she got to work with directors such as Jim Jarmusch, Hal Hartley, Ang Lee, and Paul Oster. Imagine that. Most recently, Susan was a producer on the award-winning documentary Bathtubs Over Broadway that examines the quirky world of the corporate musical, and I'm so looking forward to checking that out because it's probably really funny. Susan currently teaches at UCLA, which is where I met her. At a screening, she was moderating that the Bruin Film Society sponsored of a film she worked on as an assistant editor, The Ice Storm. And it's a pretty amazing film. If you haven't seen it, you should go check it out. I was thrilled when I made a point to meet Susan after the screening and asked if she'd share her journey and wisdom on Blissful Spinster, and she said yes. We had a wonderful chat full of amazing insights into the craft of filmmaking and storytelling, and I am so happy to be able to share this conversation with you. So however you found this podcast, thank you for tuning in, and please enjoy this week's episode. Hi, Susan. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Chris? I'm good. I'm so happy you agreed to do my podcast. I'm happy too. This is the first time I've, I've done a podcast, actually. Really? I was excited to meet you that night that we that I went to the UCLA screening of Ice Storm. I was actually more excited to meet you than <laughs> than the two zoomed in <laughs> Ted Hope and um, Tim Squires, yeah. Tim Squires, yeah. Cuz I looked you up while we were while you were talking. I'm like, "Oh my goodness, she's an editor and she did rom-coms and my movie Alone Girls, a rom-com on its head." So, I got excited. <laughs> I'm so honored. That really means a lot to me because, first of all, as just being a woman makes me feel like, uh, and and not quite as successful as Tim and Ted, doesn't make me feel any less about myself, but I just assume people are more excited about meeting them. And so it means a lot to me that you were excited to meet me. Yeah, no, I was, that's the thing is I, I have a woman, a female editor attached to my project and I did that very much consciously. I think we have to make those conscious decisions because we haven't had as easy a road. Yeah. And what's funny to me about editing is it started out with women and then somehow we got put in the back lane again. Well, I can talk a little bit about what I know about that. Yeah, sure. If you want. Sure. Even though I am a professor at UCLA and I teach film editing history, it's not all on the top of my head necessarily because I'm first and foremost an editor. You know, I was an editor for 30 years and I've been teaching for just a few. But from what I understand from the research I've done about the history of film editing, the reason that women were so involved in film editing from the beginning is that first they started as negative cutters and it was thought to be such a tedious type of work. And that since women were good at sewing, and that sort of thing, they were put to task to to do the hand coloring and hand tinting on film frames. That was very early on, even before editing in silent films, and then negative cutting. And then naturally, they started to become editors. But I think once it became more obvious that it was a role that had some kind of status to it, I think more and more men not only status, but creative control to a certain degree, I think more and more men became involved and pushed women out to some degree. Although there's always been strong female editors and continue to be. Yeah, I don't know if you know about Margaret Booth and Dee Dee Allen and some of these great female editors that also were consultants to the studios. And they had pretty big roles at the major studios overseeing the editing of lots of other films. So yeah, it's, it's women have been involved. I don't know if I heard of those names, but I do know, I can't remember their names, but I know Martin Scorsese has a very famous... Thelma Schumacher is a very famous editor. She's more more recent than them. Margaret, I believe it was Margaret Booth started out on silent films with G.W. Griffith. And then ended up having a very high position at one of the studios. I can't remember which one. And overseeing a lot of films. So yeah, a lot of these women. There's another woman, I can't think of her name right now, um, who had a similar role to Margaret Booth, 
early on and became an overseer of other people's films. I'll try to think of it before the end of the podcast. I love hearing that stuff. And then I also wonder what their life must have been like, like going up the ranks within the environment they were in. I mean, Margaret Booth was a badass from what it sounds like to me. You know, so she had men working under her in some ways. And then there's also the filmmaker Lois Weber, who was a director. And she noticed the change, even for female directors, because it also was more prevalent that women were directing in early film. And people like Alice Guy Blachet, I don't know if you've heard of her. Um, she made thousands or she oversaw, she had her own studio called Solax that mm-hmm. she was from France, but she came to New Jersey and had a studio. But yeah, she had lots of films that she oversaw, at least a thousand and directed hundreds. But then at some point, yeah, like Lois Weber is quoted as noticing when everything shifted and women were being pushed to the back a little more. I think probably when men realized there was some money to be made or it was great, whatever. I personally want equity and for everyone to have an equal playing ground. I don't think there's a let's push men completely out or anything. I just think there's other voices that should be heard amongst those other ones. And I also think we've been learning, especially women and men as well, they're just as victim to this, that the because the patriarchy has been in charge of how storytelling is told, they've been learning about women from other cisgendered white old men for hundreds of years. There's Yes, there's been female authors throughout the years. Yes, there's been female filmmakers, but they're in such small number that what we really get from movies or TV or ads or any of it is really a skewed viewpoint of what women think or want or feel. <laughs> like To me, I'm like, well, of course men don't understand us. You're learning about us from other men. Right. Or women that are following the same patterns of storytelling and cliches. Of course, that is all changing in many ways, right? Not just gender, but race. And at least I do feel like there is a trend of that changing and an awareness that we're all having regarding the roles that we assume Mm -hmm. women to have. Or minorities or anyone who doesn't fit into that binary box. I think we're coming into an age where we get to see, we're getting to see those voices come to the forefront. And I think that's really beautiful. I do too. So now that we've gotten into some really deep stuff, how did you start? What did, what made you want to be in film? And then beyond that to edit? Yeah. I always loved movies when I was young. Um, I, you know, it's funny cause I watched a ton of TV growing up and I don't let my kid watch as much TV as I did growing up, but I definitely had an influence on me. And I really begged for HBO as soon as it existed. And all through middle school and high school, I watched a lot of movies and I watched them multiple times and they had a big influence on me. And when I went to college at University of Delaware, I always had it in my mind that I wanted to be a filmmaker in some way, but I they didn't have a film major. So I ended up making my own major there, which I found out was an option (laughs) through a program called the Dean Scholar through the English department. So I ended up convincing some professors to be my advisors and I convinced the dean that, that I could make my own major. And then I got to take whatever classes I wanted. And there were film classes in different disciplines. So there were film classes in the English department, which I took as many as I could. There was intro to film, there was film genre, there was feminist film theory, world cinema. So I took as many of those classes as I could and became a TA for the intro to film class. And then I remember in the honors department, there was a philosophy class. I forget what it was called, but that was comparing films to novels. Cool. And yeah. And then there was a philosophy in film class where we watched movies and talked about the philosophies behind them. So any class that had the word film in it, I took it. (laughs) And I also studied theater. From when I was in high school, I had a fantastic theater teacher, Mr. Reiner at Ocean Township High School in New Jersey. And he really was the best directing teacher I've had, even though I I took a lot of theater classes in college. And I shouldn't say that Mr. Reiner was my favorite because David Payne Carter was really my favorite directing teacher. He passed away from AIDS way back when, and it was a real big loss for me because we were close. But I took a lot of acting classes, directing classes. I never expected to be an actress, but I had a real interest in directing from high school. And I actually won a little Best Director Award in a one-act play festival in high school, which looks like a little Oscar Oscar. (laughs) But I was very inspired by theater for sure. But I always felt like film was more where my sensibilities 
lay. And so when I went to college, I took a lot of theater classes, as many film classes as I could take. And I took photography classes as well. And philosophy, which is just, that's my interest, psychology and philosophy. And I think all of that applies to filmmaking. And then in particular, editing, which I didn't realize I was interested in until one of the classes I took, I think it was the world cinema class, went deep into the Soviet, you know, the Russian film theories. Mm -hmm. And it was blowing my mind, this idea of my favorite theory is the Kuleshov effect, which I'll explain in case your listeners don't know. I don't know if you, do you know the Kuleshov effect? Okay. (laughs) I think I may have heard it 20 years ago, but I don't know. I studied theater. I have a master of fine arts in theater technology. So cool. I meaning the technical side and the design side. And so I felt as a writer that if I studied that stuff, it would make me a better writer because a script, whether it's a play or a screenplay is a is it's a conversation you're having with the other artists. It's the way I see it. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know how I came to that decision at 20, whatever, but I did. <laughs> well, I think we all have some innate wisdom. And I think that the wisdom that learning the other disciplines of a craft that has many disciplines involved is just smart way to think about it. And so the Kuleshov effect is just that you have close up of someone. Mm-hmm. This guy, Lev Kuleshov, came up with this theory and then proved it by taking a close-up shot of a man looking at the camera and then intercutting a shot of, say, a bowl of soup. And then you cut back to a close-up of a man, the same exact shot, but then you cut to, say, a gun. The idea is that by juxtaposing these images together, the audience will infer that man is perhaps hungry if you cut to the soup or if he's looking at a gun that he's murderous. So it's the idea that by putting these two images next to each other, it changes the meaning of each of those images on their own. And that blew my mind. I thought, that's what editing is. Wait, you can put shots next to each other and create new meanings. And I just thought that was a very cool concept. Yes, I have heard of that. And I think I had the same thought you did. Because there's a, I think there was a documentary I watched that had that talked about that and showed like what he was up to. And I love that. I have a short that I did that's black and white that it's about student loans. It is literally shot in kind of close-ups of things and the person ends up opening the envelope and it's paid. So the gun that he put out, he doesn't need to use. Uh-huh. Oh, there you go. <laughs> the pop you hear is actually a bottle of champagne. Like you think that the pop you hear is wrong. <laughs> And then the last shot is the bottle of champagne being put on the table because it's all just table and you never see his face. You just see the letter and stuff. And so I guess I was inherently doing that without knowing. Exactly. Uh, And I think music has the same effect with editing too. You put that same man, close up of a man with a bowl of soup with two different pieces of music or sound effects would also inf- help inform what you're trying to do, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so that that piqued my interest in editing was this idea of how you can manipulate your audience through not only uh, different shots put next to each other or the rhythm of shots and how quickly you're cutting from one shot to the next, you know, your pacing, all these editing elements and techniques manipulate the audience. But like you said, also the sound, which is so much of what editors do is also manipulate the sound. And I realized too, like that word manipulation may have a negative connotation, but it depends on what your intention is. And I also like to think of editing as curating an experience for the viewer, because from whatever your opening shot is, whatever your opening sound is, whatever character you decide to introduce first, and whatever action you're introducing in whatever order, that's what editing is. You're just curating this experience through the visuals and sound, usually through a story, right? A narrative, but not necessarily if it's experimental or music video, you're still curating an experience. And so I always liked that idea of having this creative influence over the experience of a viewer. That's so cool. Because I, the work I normally, my day job is what I call it, is I work in unscripted. Because I kind of ended up going up that route. Sure. But what I ended up doing was becoming a part of people's lives as a producer and unscripted and watching ups and downs and then watching footage, hours and hours of footage of people talking or, and as you know, as an editor, we don't speak very well. It informs how you write dialogue. Right. So I think it was a really good, like the writer I am today, much better than the writer I was back then because of the journey I've taken. One thing I love is the collaboration that you get 
when you are a writer director and you bring in the editor, your eyes are so invaluable to what I've tried to create, you know, and can you talk about that relationship from your viewpoint as an editor? Yeah. With the directors I've worked with, it depends on the relationship I have with the director, how free I'll be with my criticism from the get-go. Most of the directors I've worked with want criticism from the get-go, and that's why we got along so well, because I'm not one to, to sugarcoat things very much. If I don't like something, I make it known. And it's easier to work with a director who did not also write the script honestly, because, or a first time director is always tricky too, because everything can be very precious. They may have spent years writing the script and then the shoot, they, this is true for every director, whether they wrote the script or not, they're often disappointed at the end of the shoot because they had everything in their mind for so long of what they were going to get. And then what they actually get is maybe not quite what they hoped for. It's just different. And it's hard for them to come to terms with that. So when they first come to the editing room, it can be very tricky for them to look at a first cut, but usually within within the first couple weeks, especially with people I've worked with before, we're already moving scenes around and taking scenes out and changing dialogue. And that is much easier with people who didn't write the dialogue themselves. <laughs> but they're usually more open to just changing things a lot. And I do find that's where a lot of the good work comes out of is when you do experiment and change things from how they were originally scripted. But if something's working, you also want to be the person that doesn't want to touch what's not messed up. It's a balance of honoring what's there and trying to shape something into what it was meant to be that maybe didn't happen. But some directors are much more open to crazy ideas. And I like working with those kind of people better. Some are a little more precious about what they've got and don't want to hear any new ideas. And I don't work with those people very well. <laughs> it's funny that you say I am. I am a firm believer that directors should learn how to edit and to edit one of their own, at the very least, just one thing they've done. Yeah. So they can learn about that part of the process and whether, because you do have to know that babies are going to be killed. Things that look like they were in the right order on the page may not feel the right order in the edit. And a friend of mine and I like to say, a story's told three times. It's what was written. It's what you captured when you were on set, whether it's the actor's performance or that, whatever that it, dynamic is. And then there's what ends up on screen, what you make in the edit. Yep. And you have to be open to all of those. Those are all creative processes. Those are all chances to elevate what you came up with. Yep. Exactly. I agree with that 100%. I'm astounded when I'll come in for some doc thing that we're working on and an editor will be like, what about this? Because they're working off some bite that we got in the field and they put together the recreate. I just, I love being surprised. Documentary editing is a whole different beast. And I think it's, it's more creative in some ways than editing fiction mm -hmm. because you're making the story in the editing room. And and unscripted, it might be a little different, like if it's for a TV show, but for a documentary feature, it feels like there's less of a formula that you have to stick to and you're trying to find your formula and trying to find your, not only your story, but your storytelling style. Mm -hmm. And it can be just incredibly creative. And a lot of times, more and more, I think editors are getting a writing credit on documentary films. And they should. Yep. Editors and like the story producers that are working with the editors, they're both writers in this instance that you're writing with the footage. There wasn't a script initially. There was a, maybe there was a breakdown and what you pitched that you hoped you would get, but you are bound by what the, what archival and what interview and if there's recreate or animation or whatever you've come up with, all of those things bind how the story is told. And that's where I've learned through the years, just how important my relationship with an editor is. You've had a good balance of both narrative from what I looked at. You did the Spalding Gray stuff. Yeah. I'm a huge fan just of his writing, having come up in theater and stuff. So Yeah. I was like, oh my goodness. Ang Lee, by the way, went to University of Illinois. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So he got his degree in theater at the University of Illinois, I think in the 80s, I want to say. And I went there 93 to 96. I got my master's there. So I used to hear about him. And I think when I went to the ice storm, because never, I'd never seen it, by the way. Oh, wow. That was my first time seeing it. And it was quite like, I was like, oh, this is amazing. It's amazing. That film is amazing. 
Yeah. And, but I remember hearing about it because I think one of our, prof- a couple of our professors were still, like he was still in touch with. And I think I remember hearing that he was shooting something in, in the edit or something because I graduated in 96. So that would have been around that time. And I just, I came out here and I just didn't have time as a PA nor money. To be going to everything. But I was amazed. And I just, I loved going to that screening to like see what he'd been up to early because I was pretty early in his career. Like, I think he'd only done. Yeah. So just to tell the people that are listening. So I was an assistant editor for a lot of years. I didn't really, let me go back and talk about how I got into editing because I talked about my interest. Oh yeah, sure. That's awesome. Yeah. Sorry. And then we'll, we'll come back. We'll come, we'll come up to the ice storm from there. So I, I graduated college. I waitressed for a little while and I finally got a job as, as a PA on a low budget film called the boy who cried bitch. (laughs) <laughs> which was actually a <laughs> a funny title, but not a bad film by Juan Jose Campanella, who's an Argentinian filmmaker and working in New York City. And uh, Adrian Brody was a boy in that film. I think Elijah Wood was also in that film, as a matter of fact. I have to look back. I know Adrian Brody was. Anyway, so I was a PA on that. And pretty soon after, I became an apprentice editor on a movie called Night on Earth in 1990, which was directed by Jim Jarmish. So I was very lucky because I I also didn't go to film school per se. I made my own major, like I explained. And I was very lucky to work with Jim Jarmish very early on in the editing room. And I remember the producer I was working for before that telling me, Jim Stark was his name. And I was just filing things for him and taking his laundry to the laundromat. I, it was just a, like a very menial job that I got after The Boy Who Cried Bitch because the lead actress, Karen Young, said, what are you doing after this? You're smart. And I said, I think I'm going back to waitressing. She said, no, you're not. And introduced me to Jim Stark, who I ended up working for menially. And then he said, what do you want to do? I said, I think editing, because I had been thinking about those classes in college that I loved so well, or maybe the art department. I wasn't sure. But he introduced me to Jay Rabinowitz, who is going to be editing Jim Jarmusch's next film, Night on Earth, which Jim Stark, the producer I was working for, was producing. So that's how I got to meet Jay Rabinowitz and got that job. And I learned how to sync dailies on film. It was all on film from beginning to end. So on that film, I worked in pre-production for Jim, filing things and seeing the early paperwork and that and schedules and stuff. Then I ended up working in the editing room, which starts before you start shooting, like right before preparing and getting ready and trying to keep up with the shoot and editing as they shot. And then we finished the film. It took almost a year in the editing room. The sound man all of that I got to be witness to. And then the production office that Jim worked, you know, the people that worked for Jim asked me what I was doing after that and if I would come work for them. So I ended up working for Jim's office after the film ended and I helped them get ready for the New York Film Festival and get their press packets ready. And I helped when there was interviews, I would bring Jim packets of things when he had an interview at the Shark Bar in, in New York. And so I got to know Jim Jim Jarmish pretty well and the people that work for him. And I just was pinching myself having this experience that was really over a year because I saw pre-production, the whole edit, the whole sound mix, and then everything that happened after that in regards to that film. And from there, I ended up working with Ang Lee and Hal Hartley. And and then after that, Steven Soderbergh. So as an assistant editor, I've worked with incredible filmmakers in the 90s. And so The Ice Storm was the second film I had worked with Tim Squires on, really the third, because I helped him sink dailies on a movie called The Wedding Banquet, which was an Ang Lee film that happened before Sense and Sensibility, which I also was the first assistant editor on. Yeah. And then The Ice Storm, I was first assistant editor on. And on that, we were editing on Avid, but still still cutting film to screen with. So I had a team working with and under me to get all the film ready every time we screened to keep up with the cut they were doing in the computer on the Avid. So we had to, it's called conforming the work print. So we still had to rewind and splice film together and, and make the cut exactly whatever we were seeing in the Avid and then screening on film. So I did that for a few years and became an expert at those film conforms, which helped me get my job with Steven Soderbergh in 1994 when I worked on The Underneath. And that was the first time I joined the union and then went on location in Austin and worked with Steven Soderbergh. So that was just 
again, I was pinching myself because I was a huge Sex, Lies, and Videotape fan. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't believe I was working with Steven Soderbergh. I still can't. It's I worked with him several times. I worked with him on The Underneath and then Spalding Gray, Gray's Anatomy, which not the TV show, but yeah. a monologue that Spalding Gray did. And I got to meet Spalding Gray and work with him. Amazing. And then we did, I worked on several obscure films with Steven Soderbergh. None of the big hits, which is fine with me. Well, no, but you're still getting to, I would think that experience is really cool because they're, those are probably the project, they're their passion projects that they're working on. I'll be honest, The Underneath was Steven's least favorite film he made of his own. Oh, okay. He hates that okay. film, from what I understand. But no, but it is true. Some of these other films were definitely his passion projects, like working with Spalding Gray, doing a film called Schizopolis, which I did just a tiny bit of work on. But yeah, these are, Full Frontal was a strange one. Again, not the TV show, but an obscure passion project for him as well. So that's true. Solaris I worked on. And then, and everything is Going Fine, which was a posthumous monologue we created out of Spalding Gray's all different material we had on Spalding Gray. I just want to mention too, I hear in my voice a little bit groggy because I'm just getting over COVID. So I'm just putting that out there for listeners (laughs) that I don't usually sound this groggy. I also just got over COVID. So we're COVID COVID mates. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many of us right now. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to tell you an interesting thing because you've mentioned a couple names that intersect with something that's in my life. I so my first short film was called Hashtag No Filter and I co-wrote it and co-directed it with my friend Bill Pruitt who went to Columbia for directing and writing I believe for his masters. And he went to school with Ted Hope, I think. Ah. So he knew Ted Hope from the Good Machine days in the 90s. Yeah. So flash forward 20 15, 2016. I think, I think it was 2015. I think it was a 2016 and film festival. So the film was submitting it and got it into the short film corner at Cannes. Congrats. Thank you. And that was the first film festival I ever went to. And so I like went because you get tickets with that and stuff. And so Bill joined and we're walking along the croissette and we run into Ted Hope and there there's a little reunion. And then Ted goes, hey, I can't use these tickets. Do you want to use them? And they were to the midnight showing of the Iggy Pop documentary that Jarmus did. Cool. <laughs> and there were the tickets everyone wanted. And so I wound up, we were like a couple rows away from Jarmish and Iggy Pop. Amazing. And I just thought it was funny. You're talking about all these names. I'm like, that's hilarious that I have this little story, this microcosm. Yeah, that's exciting. Yeah, it was. And that was, it was such a great documentary Jarmish did on Iggy. And- I never saw it. I should really see that. Yeah, check it out. But we should also explain who Ted Hope is. So Ted Hope oh, yeah. and James Seamus created a company in the 90s early 90s called Good Machine. And Ang Lee and Hal Hartley, the people I worked for, both made their films under Good Machine. But Ted Hope and James Seamus are still incredibly powerful, intelligent, incredible producers. And and actually, James is still a professor at Columbia. And Ted, you saw speak at the Ice Storm screening because he was a producer on that. And God, what an intelligent speaker he is. I was so blown away by what he had to say. Yeah, he's amazing. And I follow him on, on Twitter and because so, he's always got something cool to say or he asks questions and it engenders like I think he's naturally a teacher and a learner yes all at the same time and that's really cool someday I hope he'll talk to me on my podcast (laughs) perhaps perhaps he will perhaps um people like Ted Hope I value a lot because they offer their knowledge and what they're learning as they go as well that's true so yeah so what did you learn from working with Ang Lee or Steven or Soderbergh or any Gosh, I learned so much from all those different people and the editors, really, that I worked for. Tim Squires was the editor I worked for so many years, and he does all of Ang Lee's films. He also cut Gosford Park. So he taught me process, the process of editing. And even though I my process is a little different from his, he's been a guest for me at UCLA for so many of my classes over the last few years. And so I still feel like I'm learning from him, just hearing him talk about his process even now. But he really... He works so hard to look at all the angles and possibilities of a scene when he goes to cut a scene. And he'll even make a sequence of all close-ups, the scene all in close-ups, even though he knows that will never be how the film will ultimately 
present and then I'll do all the film, all the, the whole scene and just medium shots and then find the best moments from those cuts and make the best scene out of that. So I've just learned the process of how to first attack assembling a scene. I learned a lot from him, but also notes like he would have me and the other assistant editors watch scenes and have discussions and give notes on what he was doing. And he would take heed. He would listen to those notes and change the cut based on ideas that we may have as assistants, just watching and f- giving feedback. So I learned a lot about how to watch something and understand what changes are possible based on the footage or sometimes just pacing. Like, you know, I think you need to stay on the wide shot of that horse a little bit longer in Sense and Sensibility because the viewer needs a little more time to see what the horse is doing or whatever it is. And that's real specific, but. Well, no, but I love that because he's also open to notes. Like he knows what you're explaining to me is he knows that he's in a bubble when he's cutting this and he needs your, like even his assistant's voices to help guide it. Yeah. Am I getting that kind of right? Or Oh, definitely. Yeah. We all need objective opinions when we're doing something that's so ultra focused as editing. So then you went on to edit some movies that people might have heard of. That's true. <laughs> like 13 going on through. I've watched all of these in the last two days, by the way. Oh, good. Susan edited 13 going on 30, which is uh, seminal and kind of darling of the rom-com genre. Bride Wars and Easy A were the three I watched. What is that like? I mean, these are pretty big. Did they? Did you know they were they were bigger projects when you got them? And how early were you in on them? I think a couple of them were directed by the same director, right? Yes, yes. Gary Winnick was the director of 13 Going on 30 and Bride Wars and Charlotte's Web, which uh, you didn't mention, but yeah, so we did. And we did Lipstick Jungle together as well, the pilot. But we also made a film before that called Tadpole, which was an early film for him. And he won Best Director at Sundance that year for Tadpole. So I really recommend you watch Tadpole because it's a fantastic film. And that one, we had no idea how big it was going to be. It was just the huge buzz at Sundance that year. And it was a very big deal that year. I think it was 2000 or 2001. I can't remember exactly, but so Tadpole, we didn't know how big that was going to be. And it really changed Gary's career. It brought him to LA and it got him 13 going on 30 and he demanded that I come along with him. So it was a big deal for both of us. And that was super exciting. I got to work in a wonderful editing room with a great crew. Thelma Schoonmacher was across the hall at one point working on, it wasn't There Will Be Blood. It was the one, not There Will Be Blood, but it was Daniel Day-Lewis. What's the Scorsese film that takes place in old New York? Gangs of New York. It was Gangs of New York. And she had us come in and look at the Steenbeck with her, the chem, whatever she was working on. So that was thrilling. And that was a year of my life of just working on the most fun film to to work on. I'm still friends with people that I met on that film. We just really bonded as a family. Working on 13 Going on 30, but it's the first time I dealt with a big studio and the studio notes and that sort of thing. Charlotte's Web was even bigger than that. That was a really big film with a huge budget. And we were in Australia for four months. There were two editors on that because I was not as experienced on vi- with visual effects. And so Sabrina Plisko, who's an incredible editor, she's done Marvel films now, and she's just incredible. Incredible with visual effects. And her work ethic is beyond mine. I just couldn't believe the kind of hours and focus she could keep. She's incredible. So I learned so much from her, but again, a very different experience. I'm working on a small indie film. And I learned that I don't like working with that many visual effects. It's too tedious for me. Some people, it's great and it's their forte, but for me, it was it was too tedious for me. But Bride Wars was fun. Unfortunately, Gary was diagnosed with brain cancer during Bride Wars, yeah. and he passed away a couple of years after that. But it's the last film we did together, and so that's a sad one to think about. And, you know, it wasn't our favorite film as far as the quality. I mean, I think there's a lot of fun to it, and we had fun on some of those montages, but it's not our favorite film as far as quality of film, but it is the last one that Gary and I did together. And I had a lot to do at the end because he was really not feeling well. So I ended up basically running the sound mix and running the DI, which is the uh, color correct, because usually the director does and he just couldn't see and hear well enough at that point. Yeah, that was, it was tough, but I was also so honored to be able to do that for Gary. Was How did that, did that project come to him if it wasn't a favorite? Was it? I think he was excited about the job. 
And it just, yeah, I don't know. It just seemed like a silly light thing to me. But he might say something different yeah. about it. I just, to me, it was just a little too silly and light. I was watching it again and when it came out. There was some interesting editing stuff I thought with the photograph, using the photograph montages and stuff. Oh, like I would love to talk about that. Well, yeah, Bride Wars came out soon after The Kid Stays in the Picture, which is a documentary I absolutely love. And people all started copying something that they originated, which is to take still photographs and rotoscope to have people cut parts of the photograph away from the rest so that they could get some of it to blow up and move and bring life to photographs. Sometimes they'd even add like smoke effects and things like that. And so these internal movements within the still images were so inspiring to me that I begged Gary to do it on Bride Wars. And so we found someone who was a graphics guy and we made a montage of stills, like it's the wedding prep montages of going and picking out the flowers and that all that, that we decided to give it a shot of doing a similar effect on the photograph. So I'm glad that you noted that and brought that up because that was a fun homage for me towards the kid stays in the picture. I did note it and I was wondering what the genesis of that was. Was it in the script or was it you or was it the director? So it's, it was your idea. So that's awesome. That was me. That was, was that from the beginning? Because you had did he have did those get shot before during the shoot, or I after? don't remember. I think that there, I think stills were part of the plan, and then it was my idea to add the kid stays in the picture effect. Oh, okay. The opening title sequence, which has the little girls, was conceived by a company a title company. And I can't remember their name right now, which is terrible. But my friend Karen Fong worked for that company and came up with a lot of those ideas. And in fact, I had just gotten married. So she asked to borrow my notebooks that I used to plan my wedding and use them as inspiration for oh, that's cool. kind of the, the scrapbooks of the no, of the, um, the wedding notebooks and stuff there. So that was fun. But I thought she did a beautiful job at that opening sequence. Yeah, I think they all have a pretty interesting opening sequence. Like the sky that then bleeds into the background of the school photo in 13 Going on 30. It's cool. Yeah. I've always liked that. One thing you should know about the opening and ending of 13 Going on 30, if you don't already know this, is that we completely recast the kids, both kids that play Matt and Jenna. Oh, really? And reshot the entire opening and we reshot the entire ending. And you can actually now see that on YouTube. People have posted the original opening and ending. I have to watch those. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Wow. And so I actually was on set for a lot of the reshoots. The cool thing about reshooting the opening of 13 Going on 30 is that the original opening had some of the same elements. But because we had cut the rest of the film, we now had this opportunity to rewrite the opening and have there be a lot more flashbacks than were originally intended later in the film. Mm -hmm. So we created these kind of retro retroactive flashbacks. For example, she works for Poise magazine. And in the original opening, she doesn't look through the magazine, but we decided, oh, this wasn't my idea, so I'm not going to take credit for it. But we had her look at the magazine and there's insert shots of her looking through the magazine and saying, and there's an article that says 30, flirty and thriving. And she sees photographs of like her dream apartment, which were actually stills from the set of of Jenna's apartment later. That did not exist in the original opening. So she was looking at these photographs of a dream apartment, and then that becomes her apartment in the actual film. So things like that were really great to create. And so that opening sky turning into the, the school photo, that school photograph, I don't think that was not in the original either. In fact, I don't think there was even a school photographer in the beginning. So you should go back and watch the original and see the difference because it's pretty pretty clever, all of the callbacks that we were able to create after the fact. That's really, that's an important thing, I think, for listeners to learn is sometimes you do have to go back and do some reshooting or whatever to make, to elevate whatever it is you're working on or make it actually work. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's funny. I've done a few Q and A's with the producers of 13 Going on 30 at UCLA and other places, Donna Roth and Susan Arnold, who are partners and they have been for a long time. They also made Gross Point Blank way back when, before they made 13 Going on 30. They've made some cool films and they both kind of regret now 
in some ways, not really regret. It's a better film with the opening and ending. But I think everyone felt really bad for those kids who were the original actors, especially the girl for me. I really liked her performance and thought it was really genuine. But somehow the studio and whoever else felt that young Jenna should look and just be a little bit more like Jennifer Garner than she was. And so that poor other girl just got cut out of the film. And I felt bad about that. Well, that girl, the one that actually, I can't remember her name right now, but she's on Instagram as an adult now. I know. And she's posted stuff about 13 going on 30, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's really, see some of her little videos and stuff. Krista, Krista, Krista something. Yeah. And then Brie Larson was one of the six. That's right. She was one of the six chicks, Brie Larson. When I read watched it last night because that one I watched last night and there's this moment when Jennifer Gardner she's just woken up in that apartment yeah <laughs> and the, the naked man's in her apartment <laughs> I love that sequence yeah <laughs> but she hasn't discovered him yet and she's sitting on a seat like her this I don't know if it was the chair or the settee but she stands up and it's her physicality like like she hasn't figured out her adult body yet and I was just like that is such a wonderful actor choice to watch. And I didn't know, did she do that every take? Was that like, what was that like for you? Because she did such a nice job, I think, of being 13 in a 30-year-old body. Yeah, good point. Yeah, I think all of her takes, from what I remember, were similar in that. I do remember taking out a section of that sequence where she's at one end of the room And we cut something out and got her quicker to the other end of the room on that chair that you're talking about. So something got cut out in the middle. I can't remember what it was, but it's such a minor thing. But it's just interesting to know because I do remember that. And things like that happen all the time where you just take out a small beat and it just makes the scene go a little bit quicker and no one would ever know. So I do remember something like that happening in that sequence. But I And I also agree that her physicality was fantastic. There's one thing that we reshot, I think... When she first sees herself in the mirror and she pops her head up into the mirror, I'm trying to remember if we reshot that or not. Gosh, I wish Gary was around to remember because <laughs> he's probably would have a better memory than me. For some reason, I, I feel like we reshot something there and I don't remember why. Just sometimes it's not a whole sequence. Sometimes it's just a shot that you feel like you didn't get something. Yeah. Or maybe it was to take away some time and get her to a moment quicker or something like that. Yeah. No, that's so interesting because it is, it's about pacing too. And it's, yeah. you imagine in your head the, the scene and you've got all of these little parts and then you like, Someone like you with your with the clear eye looks at it and goes, what if we cut this out? And all of a sudden it snaps into place, I think, sometimes. You're like, oh my goodness, that's exactly, even though it's not what I imagined, it's much better. Yeah, I love those moments in the editing room. Sometimes we would talk about the editing gods being with us and things would just happen and they would be better and you wouldn't even know how your hands and brain made it happen. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But that's when you're in the real creative flow is when you're just like at one with the tool, whether it's an avid or film, and you're just making the film come to life from some back part of your brain that isn't overthinking it. It's just that creative process that I miss because I don't really edit anymore by choice. By choice? Why? I think I, I've sat at a computer in a dark room for too many years. I really do. And I just want to be in real life a little more. Everyone can relate to that more since COVID and being on Zoom. But my life has been like one long Zoom in the sense that I've been inside a screen manipulating things so intensely for so many years. And I just wanted to get out and away from the screen. But I do really miss that creative, super focused flow that you can get from editing. And maybe I'll go back to it here and there. My friend pulled me out of semi-retirement a few years ago, and I did a film called All About Nina with Mary Elizabeth Winstead Mm -hmm. and Common. And it's a great film, but Eva Vives directed that. And at first it was just help us get into Sundance for a few weeks. And then it turned into four months of me helping them finish the film. And it was great on some level, but it also reminded me of why I don't want to sit there. I just, it's too hard for me anymore. And that's why I love teaching. I'm in real life. I was on Zoom for a while, but it was still, there's something that feels more immediate connecting, you know, live with people, whether it's in person or not, that I just felt a little too isolated from that. You are with a director in the room a lot, which is good and bad. I just felt like I needed to be 
with more people and connecting with people. And I produced a documentary as well called Bathtubs Over Broadway. Oh. I don't know if you saw that. I saw it on your list. I haven't watched it, but yeah. Oh, Bathtubs Over Broadway is a fantastic film. My friend Dave Wisenant, who I've worked with in the editing room, directed that film and edited it. And it's about corporate musicals. And this one guy, Steve Young, who became obsessed with the records of these corporate musicals. And it's so beyond just being about discovering this music from corporate musicals. And it becomes like a really heartfelt journey of Steve Young, who was a writer on The Letterman Show, and him connecting with people who were his heroes from these records that he collected. And it's such a beautiful and hilarious film. And people end up laughing and crying and it won a bunch of awards. But yeah, Bathtubs Over Broadway, I'm not just plugging it for myself. I'm plugging it because it's an incredible experience to watch that film. And it's back on Netflix again. It was gone for a while and I and it keeps coming up as a suggested film on my Netflix. So it's oh. still out there. Well, I'm going to watch it this weekend then. Please do. But- I will. I totally will. I'm not just, that's not lip service. <laughs> it's on my list. Because okay. I love Broadway anyway. So having studied theater. Oh, yeah. But have you thought of, because you mentioned it early on, have you thought of transitioning to direct? Because some of the best directors start as editors, even Scorsese. Let's talk about that first. Let's talk about Hal Ashby, who was an amazing editor and then became a director. And let's talk about Robert Wise, who edited Citizen Kane and then went on to direct The Sound of Music and other incredible films. By the way, when I cut Charlotte's Web. We were in an old building at Paramount, which used to be the old Archeo radio and film buildings. And so I cut, supposedly, they told me that I was editing Charlotte's Web in the room that Robert Wise cut Citizen Kane. So that was pretty exciting. And he died while we were cutting it. So I had his obituary up on the wall while we were cutting Charlotte's (laughs) Web. Oddly enough, when I was editing Easy A, a huge influence on Will Gluck, the director of Easy A, was John Hughes. Mm -hmm. And You can tell. Well, we ended up, and this was my idea later, it was not scripted. We ended up putting excerpts of John Hughes films in the film, which was not scripted. And we were able to get the rights to them. But it actually works great to go ahead and cut directly to a scene from say anything or whatever. <laughs> the, yeah. And, but he died while we were working on easy a and we had his obit up. It was kind of a weird, oh my goodness. weird coincidence. But anyway, yes, I have always wanted to direct. I directed theater when I was in high school, a little bit in college. I even directed some theater after college in New York. And we just rented a, a theater and I got some friends to act. And we did a Sam Shepard play called Cowboy Mouth, where I incorporated some super eight film elements into the show and loved it. It it ended there. And I directed, I shouldn't say that because I did direct a documentary about a jazz festival called the Vision Festival in New York. Mm-hmm. And I documented the second annual, which was in 1997. So I made that documentary and I made a short diary film, which was, I didn't even intend to make this film. I was just having a hard time, traveled by myself to Mexico and ended up making a short diary film out of it. But it went to the Barcelona Alternative Film Festival the next year. And so I have this seven minute film called Sun broke, which I'm super proud of, which is just about my own trip and my own internal emotional journey that I was going through. And I've meant to do something else ever since then. That was like 2002. And I just haven't. I just haven't. But I am writing a script that I've been thinking about and working on peripherally for about 10 years. And I just want to finish that damn thing and hope to direct it. I don't really want to talk about what it is, but I do have dreams and it's not too late. It's not. I'm 51 and I'm on this. I'm 54. There you go. (laughs) And I am going to keep bugging you because I want you to direct. Please bug me. So my film, Alone Girl, it's a coming of middle age story wrapped in an unromantic comedy. Okay. You've said that a lot of times. Say it slower because I didn't quite get it. Yeah. So it's a coming of middle age story wrapped in an unromantic comedy. I like it. So I've taken the rom-com and turned it on its head. Okay. So by the end of the film, it builds up to a giant proposal that she says no to because she's realized that she's happy single, mm-hmm. which is me. It's my heart on every page of this script. Love it. So what would, as, a, as someone who's got the experience that you have of working with directors and working in this genre of rom-com, what do you think I need to 
think about as I'm prepping my storyboards or my shot list? What do I need to think about so I do the minimal amount of having to reshoot or anything? Oh, that's a great question. My first answer would be make sure you get coverage. So many student films that I see do these oneers, and a oneer is where you have a camera that's moving, usually a steady cam, throughout the scene and you capture the whole scene in one shot. Give yourself options. Even if you shoot a oneer and maybe you'll even use it, cover the scene in shots that are editable because chances are you're going to want to cut the scene down or change something. So give yourself options. That would be my number one (laughs) advice. And think about transitions from one scene to the next. You don't have to stick with them, but you might want to think about how you're going to get from one scene to the other and then throw that away. Give yourself options that, you know, actually I want to end on the close-up of my main character because we want to think about what she's feeling at that moment. And then we'll start the next scene in a wide shot where maybe you had thought of it the opposite when you shot it. So yeah, just make sure you have coverage at transitions as well. So you have options of how to get from one scene to the next. Yeah, no, I'm shooting two camera. So. Oh, wow. Because I'm a big believer that the and I learned this from all of the doc stuff I've done is it's in the reaction oftentimes, you know. That's true. But I would say problem with two camera, although I'm sure you'll find a way to do it. And I'm not experienced on set. So this is also coming from my understanding and not my experience is that the lighting has to be different because now you have to light for the other side. If you're shooting a second camera, when you're shooting a single camera, you can focus on just making the lighting how you want it on that character and not necessarily compromise where you might want a shadow on that person that you wouldn't be able to have if you're lighting the other side. The reactions you will get from that side, even though they'll be edited later, those reactions are super important, but they don't have to be shot at the same time. I'll keep that in mind. So I heard, because I listened to a lot of podcasts and the DGA has one. I don't know if you knew that. And they did a series of, I, I don't know which theater it was out here. I'm assuming it was their own, but they had all of the directors who'd been nominated on stage and they were all talking this year. And it was fascinating. There's It's a two part if you want to find it on podcast. I look, yeah. But one thing, one thing that Spielberg said, he said this interesting thing and I want to know what your take is on it because I am shooting something that's got, it, it's a comedy at its heart, it has it has dips and lows. It's, did you ever see Beginners? I love Beginners. It was a Michael. Yeah. So that's a very big inspiration for my film because at its heart, there's a father daughter mm-hmm. kind of relationship. But Spielberg said that if the crew laughs, like if it's an out loud laughter moment, that it won't be funny on screen or in the edit. That's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll, in my experience, whatever the circle take is on something funny, I just ignore what was circled because a lot of times things that seem funny at the moment, whatever energy is happening with the crew on set at that moment doesn't necessarily come through on the film. And it's not always the best take. I mean, it might be, but it, it, very often it's not. So I, that's funny. I, you put that on your email to me as a question. And I thought, wow, that's really great that she mentioned that because it is something that I found is true. I didn't know Spielberg said that. Yeah, I was. it was something I've never heard that before. And I, like, I'd love to ask Judd Apatow that question to see if he thinks the same thing. I would too. Um, I'm, I, you might get different answers from different people. It was just because I'm going into doing this. I was like, I should keep mindful of that and be open. Yeah. If you get a really funny thing and take one. Don't stop. Yeah. Get some options. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So when it comes to an anatomy of a scene, and I saw that you did something on, I think it was Tadpole. There was a Sundance thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. You did your research. I couldn't find it. I wanted to watch it to see what you guys said. But what do I have to keep in mind? I have, I might have a VHS of that. Oh. Maybe I should transfer that at some point because I haven't watched that back in years. It was just an interesting, I was like, I wonder what they have to say because, you know, going preparing to do my first film, I want to be as prepared as I can be. And what do you have to say about anatomy of a scene that I, as a director, should keep my eye on, whether it's actors' performances or the written word or thinking about how it's going to go into the edit bay? Yeah. First of all, I think you should get an objective editor if you can, if you can afford it, because just having, even if you do the first assembly yourself, it's always important to get someone objective to try something you would have never tried. But I think, yeah, I've only done objective editing except for the my documentary and my diary film. And so when I approach a scene, I try not to read the script or think about what was intended at all and just see what's there. 
So I watch the footage, I see what's there, and I take note of what hits me instinctually. And I also borrow this from Walter Murch, the great editor. I was going to say, that's from his book, because I, I love that book. I tell everyone who asks. Yeah, in the blink of an eye. Yeah, like writers will continually on Twitter go, what book should I read? And you will, if you went on a history of my tweets, I have tweeted Walter Murch's book ad nauseum because it is fantastic for anyone to read, whether you're a director or a writer. Yeah. He's written a lot of books at this point now, but the famous one is just yeah. a transcription of a speech that he made. And that one's called In the Blink of an Eye. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, but he also did Conversations with Walter Murch. And then there's another one that I forget what it's called, but I'm in that one. Oh, cool. I ended up having a conversation with Walter Murch and my email, I didn't know, I had no idea that it would be involved, but there's an email from me in his book talking about how frustrated I was with Apple's Final Cut Pro. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> That's hilarious. I know. But anyway, but just back to this idea that I borrowed from Walter Murch is, I think I remember hearing him say at one point, if he's got his pen to his paper and he's watching the dailies, and if his brain thinks banana, when he's, which is, has nothing to do with what he's looking at, he'll write down banana. <laughs> that always cracked me up. So the idea is, Whatever your brain is doing, and maybe he was hungry for a banana at that moment, but it doesn't matter. The point is, just write down your thoughts as they happen and what's really striking you most. Steven Soderbergh said something really amazing to me when I started working on when I started working on and anything is go and everything is going fine, the Spalding Gray monologues, because I he was gonna shoot, he was gonna shoot some footage on the Staten Island Ferry. He was going to have actors read from Spalding's journals. He had all these ideas, but he had never made it a, doc a documentary and didn't know how to approach it. So I watched the, a lot of the 90 hours of footage that I got of Spalding Gray. And then I put about 15 minutes together and I got super excited and said, Stephen, you got to come over and watch this. I was cutting it home. He came over he watched it and I said, I think you have something here without shooting anything. We could make a completely archival film with, with the footage that we have. And he got excited too and said, keep going. And I said, just as a director, and by the way, I remain intimidated by Steven Soderbergh to this day, but I still have, I've worked with him one-on-one, -on -one. Wow. but I find, I just find him incredibly intimidating in a good way. Like it keeps me on my toes. And so I, as he was walking out the door, I said, what, as a director, what is the note you want to give me of what I should be looking for in the footage? And he said, just pull whatever's compelling. And I was like, wow, that's total autonomy. Whatever I find compelling, just use my instincts. And so that's, to any film, that's my approach, really, when you're looking at the footage is what's striking you as you're watching it as that moment that you want to build the whole scene around. How do you get to that moment and how do you get out of that moment? But yeah, I was interested in, you said something about not reading the script when you get into the edit bay. Do you read the script before that? Like when you get brought onto the project? Oh, yes. Do you need to be interested in the project and to work with the director themselves? Yeah, I always read the script before I meet with the director the first time. And then we talk about the script. And that's usually how a, an interview will go and how I'll get a job is by discussing the script and any ideas I have about it. Someone like Gary Winnick, who I worked with for so many years, would want me to edit the script and give ideas of how we could actually edit the script. But not most directors I've worked with haven't had me do that. But occasionally they do with editors they trust. And it's not like I don't look at the script at all. I do. But I just try to see what's there, especially if there's improv and just make the best scene out of what's there as opposed to what was originally intended. I was just curious, like how far that went. <laughs> I do read the script. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think there's value. There's real value in knowing the script, but divorcing yourself from it once the footage comes in to a certain extent, because you can only, was it Walter Mersh basically one of the things he said was there's only what's on what you captured on screen, not what's two feet over there yeah. away from the frame. So that's what you have to work with. It's what you captured. How do you think film has changed in the when it come in the respect of editing since you started to now? Because I think the styles changed a bit, right? What people see? I think so. Um, I did start on film and learned how to edit on film a little bit. I knew how long it took to make that decision of when you were gonna cut out of a certain shot and cut into the next one. And you took your time a little bit more because you don't want a bunch of little frames that you have to then tape back on or... So you, you were a little more careful. 
Now, people cut so quickly, and sometimes it bothers me when I see the way my students cut. It's so unprecise. And I think that Premiere, from what I can see, is a little more unprecise than how I'm used to working in an Avid because you're moving blocks of things around and putting them in the timeline as opposed to like picking a frame and marking it in and in or in out. Do you think that's true, actually? I think somebody who is who hasn't who's maybe learned on by watching a YouTube video might might be like that. I get incredibly precise with my premiere because you can do in and out points and stuff like that. And I even I'll watch and I go, no, it needs like it's the pacing thing. Like I but I think you can get into that kind of I'm trying to move quickly. I'm just going to move this block here, there. It it lends itself to being able to do that. Avid is a little less intuitive, which I think is why it lends to needing to be precise. Yeah. So I'm starting a very new thing. And this is your, you're the, you're my guinea pig. Okay. Because my show is called Blissful Spinster. Me and my friends have been calling it BS. It's a segment called I Call BS. And I'm going to give you a word. And then I want you to expound on it with I call BS. Okay. And it's an editing word and it's continuity. Okay. So I worked with an editor named Artie Schmidt at one point who edited Forrest Gump. He came on to do a little bit of editing on Charlotte's Web. And I remember we all quoted him because he said, continuity is for sissies. And also Margaret Booth is quoted of saying something like, I don't care about continuity, but let me just say this first. First, I'll define continuity, which is making it seem like one shot is seamlessly cutting into the next as if you're in the same time and space. So if you're cutting from a close-up of somebody and their hand is in the shot and then they go and reach for a cup, that, that shot of the cup, which is in a different shot, you understand as an audience viewer, that is supposed to be the next moment in the same time and space. It might have been shot two weeks later in a totally different place. So that's the idea of continuity. It's easy to call BS on continuity and say it doesn't matter. But first, we have to acknowledge that it does matter. But if the emotional arc of the character or some something in the action of the story makes it such that the continuity isn't possible going from one shot to the next, then the continuity goes out the window and we don't care. You won't, People won't notice it so much. So it is important to try to create continuity between shots, but it really doesn't matter in the gist of things if the other elements aren't working. So emotion is first, storytelling is next, pacing, all of those other things come before continuity, but it's not to say continuity is not important at all. Okay, cool. Do you have anything that you want to get the word out about, or do you just want me to cheer you on to, so that you become a director? <laughs> I want you to cheer me on so I become a director. Okay, good. Because <laughs> I'm going to do that. And I'm so happy that you agreed to do my podcast, and it's been so fun getting to know you a bit and to learn from you. So thank you so much, Susan. Thank you so much, and let's keep in touch. Yeah, let's keep in touch. I think we've made a friendship. Absolutely. Good luck with your podcast. Thanks. And good luck with your directing career. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Take care. Thank you so much for tuning in to Blissful Spinster. If any of these conversations are resonating with you, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Blissful Spinster on Instagram and Twitter and through our website, blissfulspinster.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me on this journey. And until next week, find your happy.